Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, first off, thank you very much. I also want to thank everybody that voted for this podcast on the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Uh, we didn't win, but we were a finalist, and with 5.1 million votes, I'm really happy with that. So thank you for listening and for voting. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. And I also want to especially thank Carnation, our sponsor for this podcast. It's, it's really appreciated. This is important what we're able to talk about, and um, I look forward to be able to continue many more years of this podcast. Today's a very special show as we have not one, but four authors as today's guests. Jeffrey Carver, Nebula Award finalist for Crucible of Time. Edward Lerner, physicist and computer scientist with 23 published books, including five with Larry Niven, Best of EML, which is uh, the book I read for this. And Larry Niven has also uh, been one of our judges for Writers of the Future for well over 30 years, maybe 35 years. Alan Smale, a past Writers of the Future winner and recent recipient of the Sidewise Award for his alternate history novel, Hot Moon. Edward Willett, Aurora-winning author, The Tangled Stars. They're all represented by a prior podcast guest, book publicist Mickey Mickelson, who I want to publicly thank for originating this podcast. It was his idea, and I thought, never done it before. And so this, is, this has been quite a challenge, but I'm very excited to see how this is going to come out. I have a personal policy of reading at least one work of any author guest I have on the show, so I had quite some homework to prepare for today's show. Uh, anyway, hello and welcome, Jeffrey, Edward, Allen, and Edward. Hello. Oh, hello. Happy to be here. Yes, definitely happy to have you. So I'm just going to run through each one of you first uh, for a brief little um, discussion about yourself um, as an author and um, your your current project. What I read was, I'll start with uh, Jeffrey Carver, Reese of Time. I, you know, I read that one there and I was just like, I got totally sucked into it. I wasn't able to read the second one because I had three more books to read after that one. But it really came across to me as a cross between Doc Smith and Larry Nevin's Ringworld. So anyway, you created and hosted an educational TV series for middle school students, science fiction and science and fantasy writing. So um, anyway, welcome, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, thank you. It's, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, just a brief overview about your brief uh, capsule. Okay. I've been publishing science fiction since the 1970s. I um, I'm probably best known for uh, two series, the Star Rigger Universe, in which uh, was set, uh, just a slight correction, my, my Nebula finalist uh, was for uh, Eternity's End, which was part of the Star Rigger Universe, and um, the Chaos Chronicles, which I have focused on more in recent years, and the last, the a pair of novels that were published a couple of years ago, uh, The Reefs of Time and Crucible of Time, were really written as one novel, but it was too large to be published as one, so it was split into two, and uh, and that's how that. And so I'm now working on the final book of that series, tentatively called Masters of Ship World, and I'm glad you enjoyed it, John. Me too. <laughs> okay, good. And then uh, uh, Edward Lerner, Ed, um, he's a physicist and computer scientist with 23 published books, including five with Larry Niven, as I said. There we got best of EML, and there. Um, I really enjoyed Time Out, and we're going to get in some questions with everybody also just on 
how dealing with fast and light travel and time travel and not. But anyway, so Ed, please uh, a brief overview about yourself. Okay. As John said, I started out in physics and computer engineering, and I worked in high tech for quite a while with writing science fiction as my hobby. I've been published for about 30 years. In 2004, after I sold my second novel, meaning the first wasn't a fluke, I switched to writing full time. <laughs> um, most of my writing has been novels, but I also have dozens and dozens and dozens of shorter works. And uh, faced with uh, the sometimes uh, challenging question of which of my books do I like best, I put together an anthology, or rather a collection, The Best of Edward M. Lerner, which is a career-spanning collection of 14 pieces of shorter fiction at every length from flash fiction, which is a thousand words, to uh, a novella. Time Out that John mentioned is uh, one of my favorites. It's a time travel story in which the, the main character has absolutely no technical background and has to struggle to figure out uh, how this time travel thing works and how much trouble he's really in. And the short answer, of course, is a lot. A whole lot. <laughs> Great, thank you. And Alan Smale, a past uh, Writers of Future winner and recent recipient of the Sideways Award for his alternate history novel, Hot Moon, which is seriously hot and seriously cool. Um, intense action, uh, a really great female protagonist on this thing, seriously intense. So hello, Alan. Hello, thanks for having me on. Yes, my, my name's Alan Smale. I've been published since the 1990s. Uh, mostly in those days, my output was short stories. I've had about 50 stories published, including four in Asimov Science Fiction magazine. Uh, so my stories appeared in magazines and original anthologies, including, as you said, the Writers of the Future anthology. Uh, volume 13. Yes, I've won the Sidewise Award twice. This the, one. Yep, that's it. Yes, uh, I've won the, the Sidewise Award twice, actually. Uh, the first time was in 2011 for a novella called A Clash of Eagles, which became the first part of my Clash of Eagles novel. Uh, that, that The Clash of Eagles series is a trilogy. Clash of Eagles itself, Eagle in Exile, and Eagle in Empire, and they came out from Random House between uh, 2015 and 2017. And the idea behind those books is that the uh, uh, the Roman Empire has survived in its classical form until the 13th century and is now moving into North America. For the last 10 or 15 years, basically everything I've written has been either alternate history or historical fantasy. I have written fantasy and horror in the past, but now I'm really locked into the, the alternate history side of things, as you can guess from the Sidewise Awards. Um, I did have a, a short novel out called The Wandering Warriors, which was time travel. That was out from Wordfire Press, and that's a collaboration with Rick Wilbur. And as you said, my most recent book is Hot Moon, which is out from Kasich, Park Manor, and that's a much more contemporary alternate history. And that's my alternate Apollo novel set in 1979 uh, in a universe where the U.S. Apollo program continues and... Um, the Russians are also still uh, attempting to go to the moon. And so lots of excitement ensues uh, in, in that alternate 1979. So that's me. All right. And then last but not least, Edward Willett, uh, war Aurora winning author. And the book that I read of his is The Tangled Stars. I'm really anxious to talk about all of you about the whole subject of, of um, 
fast light travel and how to get around um, Einstein's um, apparent bar that's been set that's been hard to or hasn't been passed yet. So I'll bet you're about yourself, uh, Edward. Well, <clears throat> I am, um, as I always say in my little potted bio, I'm the award-winning author of more than 60 books of science fiction, fantasy, and nonfiction for readers of all ages. I started as a newspaper reporter and editor in my 20s for my hometown newspaper. I was communications officer at the Saskatchewan Science Center for a while and got really interested. Even before that, I was interested in writing about science as well as writing science fiction. I actually started writing science fiction in the 70s, but I wasn't published in the 70s. I was writing in high school quite a bit. Uh, my first book came out in the 90s. It wasn't science fiction. It was using Microsoft Publisher for Windows 95. <laughs> and I did a lot of that kind of thing. I've written about every topic under the sun for educational publishers. I wrote Genetics Demystified for McGraw-Hill without knowing a thing merely about genetics before I wrote it. Uh, the Tangled Stars is my 12th novel for DAW, so DAW is my major publisher. I've written for a lot of smaller publishers as well, both science fiction and fantasy, and under my own name and under a couple of pseudonyms, Lee Arthur Chain and uh, E.C. Blake. And uh, I have my own podcast I would very much like to mention because it would be of interest to the listeners. I have a podcast called The World Shapers, where I interview other science fiction and fantasy authors about their creative process. And uh, that's up to episode 118, I think, as of the last one. And I've interviewed many of the biggest names in the field. And uh, yeah, so I think anybody interested in, in writing and learning about the creative process of other writers might want to check out my podcast as well as my books. Absolutely. What's your podcast? It's called The World Shapers, and it's at theworldshapers.com. Okay, great. All right. So um, thank you for that uh, overview. So now the next thing I wanted to go over, because, again, that's the audience that we've, we've got here as aspiring writers. Like the biggest obstacles you had to overcome as a writer, if there were times you were ready to give up or, you know, that you then had to deal with to be able to, to, to persist. So um, this one here, I'm not going to be quite so you know, A to Z, A to Z, A to Z. So anybody can answer if you want to on this thing um, or not, but just any, where you had obstacles you had to overcome and times you're ready to give up, but then you persisted or somebody helped you or something that gave you that extra spark to just one more time and then you actually then made it over the hump. Okay, don't everyone uh, speak at once, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're all thinking really hard. Yeah, after my first novel came out, I was in a new day job that gave me way too little time to, to write. I was working six days a week, long days on a good week, and too often seven days a week. And it was very hard to believe I'd ever get back to writing. So when I uh, set aside novels for a bit and switched over to writing short stories and uh, actually could finish a project in a reasonable period of time and, and sold a couple of them. That uh, was very encouraging. Okay, great. Thank you. That was um, Ed Lerner. Anybody else on that? Or you guys have all like, were born with a silver spoon in your typewriter and it just went from okay. there. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Jeff. Yeah. I'll jump in if you like. Well, I started writing seriously in college and in the uh, couple of years following college and uh, collected rejection slips for years. And um, uh, what, at that point, what kept me going was my belief that somehow I could write better than the people who were publishing this stuff that I didn't think was all that good. 
this was total hubris and ignorance because I wasn't really that good a writer yet. And the biggest obstacle was learning to um, learn to tell stories that people would want to read and would want to pay for. And it, it's not an easy job to learn the craft of writing. Um, and it involves all sorts of things about learning to create characters, learning to create plot, learning to um, structure a world. And these things came, I didn't really have any outside help at the time. So I was fumbling along, driven by my own belief. And um, once I was published and I became part of a writer's group and I had more input into uh, all of these things, Oddly enough, as the years went on and my career went on, I probably became less convinced of my own um, wonderfulness of a writer and, and had more periods of doubt. And I can tell you there are countless, countless times when I was ready to just throw in the towel and say, this is it. I've done my best work. It's not coming again. Um, and literally through my entire career, this has happened over and over and and but I always keep plugging and now I have the support of my my uh, family and my group who say no you haven't lost it yet just settle down it will come again keep working and and then it does and and I've had some uh, terrific editors over the years too who have helped uh, I gotta say that Reese of Time was just amazing so, and I started with the second book and I got lost so then you said no no you, you need to start with Reese of Time which made all the difference yeah yeah yeah, yeah, you jumped into the middle of the story. So, it was. So that would be hard. But it was amazing. Uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a great story. And it was just, like I said, if it wasn't for the fact that I had four more books to read or three more books to read, I would have gone right on, which I probably will um, when I get Windows to be able to read the, the next one because it was, it was just so entertaining. Well, I hope you do. And I'll just note that it took me 11 years to write that, that book, pair of books. And there were definitely periods during that time when I thought this – uh, this is never going to be finished, and um, and yet, in the end, it yeah, was, and, you, and I moved You on. done did good. <laughs> All right, and right. anybody else have any? Uh, Alan, yes. Okay, yeah, I would certainly agree with Ed Lerner that one of the major problems has been finding time. I wrote when I was a kid. I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't writing as well as reading, although my early writing was atrocious. And so I did write in uh, when I was very young and into my teenage years. Uh, and then I had to kind of stop because I was studying at college. I, I went to Oxford and I was studying for uh, for my degrees and going on from there and trying to make a career for myself. And so uh, that left very little time for writing. I really didn't do any writing during my 20s. I decided in my 30s that I was really going to get back into it. And that was when I started selling short fiction. Uh, and so, But there have been many times during the, that period when I've had difficulty finding time to write. And the other issue is that there are ups and downs in the writing business, right? I, I think just about everybody will tell you this. And I did have a fair amount of success with the Clash of Eagles trilogy that came out from Del Rey. Uh, but after that, Del Rey didn't actually want the next book I was trying to sell. And the pandemic came along, and I had these novels that I was trying to, trying to push, my agent was trying to sell. And we were basically having no success. And I admit to thinking during that time, you know, maybe I just had my time. I had my big contract and I'm not going to get anything again. And that does happen to people. A lot of people who are publishing their first novels around the same time as me haven't published anything since, haven't been able to publish anything since. So I thought, well, maybe that's it. I still had confidence that I could write short fiction and probably place short fiction. But I thought maybe the publishing business has changed. 
Maybe it's moved along. Maybe people don't want the kinds of things that I write anymore. And so my confidence did take a boost. As I say, I wasn't, I don't think there was a point where I was ever going to give up, but certainly there were times when it was hard to find the day to day resilience to keep sitting down at the keyboard and typing more and going ahead and keeping to trying to do, trying to do the thing and carry on doing that. And as you know, I've, I've sold another book since then, and that seems to be doing well. So my confidence is back up. I'm up the up the wave again right now, but who knows? I may be down the wave again in another couple of years. Well, let's just hope it's not a sign curve here. Let's just hope it's just a straight. Yeah, the sign um, curve would, would kind of suck a bit. Yes. I would say that the biggest challenge for my writing has been my writing. <laughs> and it's because I'm, I'm split in these two areas, right? I've been a full-time freelance writer since 1993. And uh, I do anything for a buck as a freelance writer. So I've written everything you can imagine. I used to have a science column. I've, I wrote entertainment news. I interviewed people like Weird Al Yankovic for the newspaper at one point. <laughs> Very good interview, by the way. Yeah. Um, I hosted a TV program. And I recently, like four years ago, I started my own publishing company. And that's a huge, huge sink of time that pulls away from my writing. When I first decided to go freelance, I said I was looking forward to being my own boss and writing all I wanted. And somebody told me, you know, you may find that you had more time to write what you want to write before you had to make a living at it. <laughs> and I think that's true. So my focus, there's always this stuff I have to do in order to make a few dollars. And the fiction, unfortunately, pay some, but it doesn't pay enough to make a living. Fortunately, I married an engineer, which is something I recommend to anybody who's a freelance writer. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you may not be able to manage that. Uh, or some other professional, always a good choice. But yeah, so my, my, challenge, my challenge has often been, I want to write things I want to write, but I have to write stuff I don't want to write as much because that's my job. Right. Um, and that's actually been the challenge. I've never been tempted to give up writing. I don't know I don't know how one does that. So <laughs> my wife yeah. says she gets to retire and I get to slump over the keyboard. That's kind of our, <laughs> our plan. That's what it is, yeah. <laughs> so I have a question now. When I was reading all your, all the different books, there was, I mean, Alan, you had obviously your um, alternate history and that one there was just amazing how you, you start with a known datum and you finish with a known datum and everything between is Alan's datums. Um, or Ellen's data, which is fascinating how that happened. Then I afterwards, okay, let's look at these timelines. And it was just like, wow, just it was really cool how you just, this is what's happening and this is how it went down. And it was probably what you had to write was was way more um, exciting than what actually went down for, for real. Maybe not, but <laughs> I, I certainly hope not. I hope yours was way much more exciting than what really went down with your... Uh, the rail gun on the moon and the whole thing there in the atomic warfare and whatnot that took place up on the moon. But on the subject of fast and light travel. So is it a thing of like, um, where we have, everyone's convinced that Michelangelo painted dark and it was, that's what it was. And then someone actually checked and found out that it was just the accumulation of centuries of candle smoke that clouded the artwork. And he really had very bright, you know, artwork up there. And it would totally uh, demystify this whole thing of which was a wrong channel that everybody's going with on. There were even books coming out explaining why Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel so dark. It's, are we looking at the same thing here with um, what, we've what we've got seem to be locked in with Einstein's um, 
can't go fast in the speed of light. Does anybody have any comments on that? Because there's just all types of other ways with the wormholes and with other windows and portals and whatnot to accomplish getting other places in less than 50 lifetimes. I, I think it's quite likely that there is that it is not possible to do the things we do in science fiction to get around that that limit. Sometimes the universe just is what the universe is. And where we, there are certain physical laws that you can't, you know, we're not all Scotty, the Star Trek engineer who can break the laws of physics because the captain told him he had to. Um, but at the same time, who knows? And uh, be, because we don't know what we don't know. We don't know right. what discoveries there might be in the future. So when it comes to writing fiction, as you know, in The Tangled Stars, a lot of it is about this idea of a way of getting around that called what did I call them? Multiverse adjacent space-time tunnels. And exactly. They're described as like sort of between multiverses, there's this non-space that you can enter and then pop out back into your own universe somewhere else. Why not? Um, and I, you know, wormholes were done and I just wanted to have a different acronym and I've used other things in the past and it's usually just taking something like brain surfing, you know, B-R-A-N-E or something like that and, yeah. and waving your hands. Uh, I, so... I don't know. Clark's law comes into place. Any adv sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And maybe maybe somebody out there has found something that we haven't. But in the meantime, uh, with some exceptions, I think most of us using faster than light travel are just waving our hands and we're really writing fantasy, but we're putting a scientific sheen on it. Well, there's, there's yeah. certainly some truth to that. Uh, in addition to writing mostly science fiction and techno thrillers, I occasionally write popular science. And in my popular science book, Troping the Light Fantastic, The Science Behind the Fiction, there's a, a long chapter on workarounds if you can't travel faster than light, you know, things like generation ships and suspended animation, and another chapter on how you can seemingly go faster than light without going faster than light. Uh, there's... There are some exceptions here. Uh, general relativity has uh, loopholes of sorts. So, you know, wormholes are the best known. But there are also variations like, you know, what happens if a multiverse is possible? Ed was uh, not taking seriously the possibility of crossing over into another universe or between universes where the physical laws might be different, but it's respectable science to speculate that our universe is only one of many universes and that uh, the parameters that are totally mysterious if there's only one universe are easily explained if it's one of many, many, many universes and that uh, you can pick and choose and, and find one with much faster light speed. You only need to figure out the small problem of how you cross over and then cross back. And it turns out, and I discuss in uh, Troping the Light Fantastic, that there are lots of these possibilities that are considered serious science. Okay, well, Jeff Carter, um, he solved that. So, Jeff, talk about that, what you did to, <laughs> to solve that one with your, um, um, I mean, that was, again, with uh, the series, or at least the first book that I read there. Well, if you're referring to, <laughs> I'm not sure which part of it you refer to. I have something called the Star Stream, which was uh, a creation that uh, came from a different novel um, involving a um, a uh, hypercosmic string that was bound to a black hole at either end, 
and became a sort of interstellar express route toward the center of the galaxy. Uh, I have people traveling through K space, N space, which are just different um, uh, dimensional layers. I'm not very specific at all about what those are. Uh, my basic operating philosophy is that I have the greatest respect for Einstein and relativity, but I believe that we only know a small fraction of what of all of physics at this point, and that there are any number of possibilities that may emerge. So my Starrigger universe is actually predicated on, a, uh, as far as I know, a fairly unique, fairly unique, that's a bad phrase. Uh, aspiring writers yeah, don't say fairly <laughs> unique. Uh, in the Starrigger universe, that ships travel through a sort of hyperspatial layer in which there are currents, like undersea currents, that go from one place and uh, in space to another, um, and is unrelated to distances in normal space. And the pilots, who are called star riggers, uh, use a sensory net to reach out into the current, and the way they navigate is by overlaying their own mental uh, fantastic imagery on an existing layer, and it's a sort of merging of the, the uh, imagination of the rigger with the actual topology that they're navigating through. And this was, uh, I wrote about this in a short story and then it just sort of uh, blossomed into a series of books. But that's what star rigging is all about. And if you want to call that fantasy, I won't complain. If you want to call it hard science fiction, I won't complain. People have called it both. So, uh, uh, I mean, there are dragons in that, uh, one of the layers of the continuum. So uh, there are elements of fantasy in it, but it's also, it's-, it's Although Anne McCaffrey, argued until the very end that she never wrote anything but science fiction with the Dragon Riders of Pern because they were all they were all created through science That's and right. I had many conversations with her about that. That's right. So now on you've all got you know combined science degrees here. I could probably stack up a, a sheaf of papers, you know, half a half a foot thick just stacking them up between the four of you. So how much does science come into play to either how do you use your science to write your stories? Because obviously you've, you've got all your training, Einstein says, and that's kind of like what we're, what we're dealing with right now with, with the level of science. And to say Einstein wasn't correct, you run into unwillingness for people to suspend their disbelief. So what's your, how do you fit, fit in your science with your science fiction? Alan, yeah. Well, can I jump in as a non-scientist? Sure. I may be, I have no, I, I'm a science junkie. I love science. I don't have a science degree. I've never done science. So I use science with the utmost care combined with wild imagination. And to me, this is just how my stories come together. Um, so it is very important to me that in my stories, when I use, say, world building elements that in which a scientific sensibility is important. I try to be uh, very faithful to real science. I will extrapolate from it. I will extrapolate wildly, but it's always based in what my right. own understanding of science is. So you would not use my books as a primer for um, science as we know it now. But if you know science, I don't think you'll be too upset by what I've done. So I, I think it's important to, to respect the reader's um, I don't know, literacy about science, or maybe okay. bolster it a little bit. And um, 
uh, maybe after other people have spoken, I want to put in a plug for something about astronomy and science that might be. Good. Okay. So we'll, we'll circle back around with you, Jeff. So Alan, you had something to say. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that generally you get to cheat once, right? You get to, when you're writing science fiction, you can have one thing that breaks the laws of physics, but everything else you have to play fair with. So in this case, some of the writers here maybe have, have stipulated that you can have faster than light travel, or they've had multiverse ways of going faster than the speed of light. But in in other ways, they've presumably played fair to the laws of physics throughout. And so, and that's that's one thing that I think a lot of people do. Maybe you have telepathy as the one, one the one non physical thing, but everything else is physically correct. Um, specifically in my own work, and specifically with Hot Moon, which is actually hard science fiction. Uh, yeah. It's alternate history, but it's very hard science fiction as well. In that case, I'm definitely using the science and technology of the Apollo program, uh, extrapolated out to 1979, which is not very far from 1972 when we stopped going to the moon. Uh, but I've totally played first with, with all the laws of physics there. I actually have spreadsheets where I've described, well, for my own use, where I've been figuring out like how much fuel it takes to do certain things to make orbit changes uh, what the what the angle of the of the sunlight on the moon would be at certain times, all of the times and phases and uh, and illuminations work out because I know that there are people that are going to be looking for things like that specifically. In my case, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but in my day job, I work at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. My background right. is in physics. I'm nowhere near the human spaceflight program. I'm a research scientist in a completely different area, but I know that there are going to be people who know me and who are going to be uh, wanting to read the books and know that everything in there is going to be scientifically and technologically accurate. And so I owe them that. And the people that don't know me, don't know me, I owe them that as well. I want them to have the experience of reading this book about the Apollo program and having the feeling that it's as technologically sound as I can make it and that everything in there is going to be faithful to, to the, to, to the laws of physics and to the technologies that we had at the time. So that was what I was aiming to do with that particular book. Yeah, Hal Clement talked about, he was one of our judges earlier on, um, how he would write hard science, but he had something wrong on the spin, gravitational spin on one of the planets. And it was he was caught out on and he said, yeah, I didn't do my research properly on that one there. So he said, you've got you've to have your science right on stuff. We're going to have some people to come in. Larry Niven on Ringworld definitely said people commenting on, on different aspects of it that weren't correct on the science of it that he had to come back and, and correct later on in that. Yes, that's but one of the reasons why he wrote the yeah. second Ringworld novel was so that he could correct some of the things about the first Ringworld novel, where the Ringworld itself is actually unstable under certain circumstances. So he, he had to figure out why, how he could stabilize it and put that into the Ringworld engineers. Exactly. So either of the Eds have anything to say? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump okay. in. Okay, Mr. Lerner, yes. Okay. The first rule of writing fiction is you have to make life difficult for your protagonists. And there are yeah. lots of ways to do that. And the way I do it typically is people have to live within the way the physical universe works. My most recent novel called Deja Doomed takes place mostly on the moon. And uh, like Alan, I dipped very heavily into uh, the the archives of the Apollo program for that, what it would be like if you actually wanted to try to live on the moon and travel on the moon. Uh, now, my fictional component in that book was 
Once on the moon, someone stumbles across an ancient alien artifact. And uh, no one could possibly be native to the moon, so there's high tech to be found, and everyone wants to get their hands on it. So um, physics and biology, how you could actually survive in that environment, uh, provided all the constraints uh, to make life very, very difficult for my characters. And I would okay. just say that uh, when I'm using science, when I'm researching science, that that can actually, interestingly enough, drive plot points if things you haven't thought about. So I did a, a story, which wasn't what it was. It was faster than light ships that leapfrogged past a generation starship. So this generation starship shows up and it's been traveling at relativistic speeds. This is a book called Right to Know. And uh, it gets there and humans are already there because they got faster than light travel while they were creeping along and they're waiting for them when they get there. And it's what happens at that point. But among the things I was researching was like uh, how fast this ship had to spin in order to create uh, gravity. And uh, it was slower than I thought it was. So if I had just done it without doing the research, it would have changed the scene. But I found out it was actually about a walking speed for the size of the ship that this was. It wasn't tremendously fast, uh, which was interesting to me. I didn't know that. And another thing I ran across, I have a book back here about building starships, um, that they're very, very, in a very, very complicated machine, like a, I don't remember how big my ship was, but you know, it had multiple thousands of people on it something is breaking like every minute somewhere on that ship, which then gave me the idea of having these maintenance robots running around and they became integral to the plot. So as you try to make your science real, it also, as Ed says, science makes things difficult for your characters and makes the story better as well. Okay. That's great. So yeah, this is, these are all things that, you know, anybody who is attempting to write hard science what you need to deal with, because obviously, if you're writing hard science fiction, you're going to have to break some rules because otherwise it's no longer science fiction. But how do you do that and make it so that I think the key thing on science fiction is how do you get it so that the reader is totally open and willing to suspend their disbelief in what your storytelling is so they can go along. And I think what um, I think it was you, Alan, saying you've got to have, you know, if you're going to have one one piece of science that is fictionalized, everything else around it has to be uh, sound science so that you can kind of like meld them together into a story that takes you into a different direction, but is still somewhat plausible. So now we, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah you had one more thing to say, Jim. Just make a plug for the writer who's interested in learning more about astronomy and how to use that accurately in their fiction. There's a, an annual program called the Launchpad Astronomy Workshop that's held at the University of Wyoming every year, every summer, hosted by uh, Mike Brotherton, who's a science fiction writer and astronomer. It was originally funded by NASA and National Science Foundation specifically to help science fiction writers and other writers to get the science right and thus to uh, communicate it to readers. Uh, it's a it's a great program. As far as I know, it's still ongoing for next year. And just look up let's, uh, Launchpad Astronomy Workshop online. You'll find it. And if you're a writer who's looking to learn more about this, uh, it's excellent. Oh, that's it great. I highly recommend it. It's excellent. I've been oh, there good. too. So now, um, as I announced when we first uh, 
we're putting this this interview together. This podcast is based on writers of the future. So any other particular tips and suggestions for aspiring writers? And I'd like to start first with Alan, because you've actually uh, won the Writers of the Future contest. You came out to the workshop, and so you've and you've read several of um, Mr. Hubbard's uh, essays. So anything, first of all, about the contest, um, any of the essays that you remember, you know, you know, this this far into the future, and any of the stories from um, Mr. Hubbard that you've read that for you have been um, particularly significant. Yeah, so this was quite a while ago. I took second place in the Writers of the Future uh, in 1996. Uh, and so I went to the workshop that, that was run for the Writers of the Future winners in 1997. And that was a great experience. I had actually entered the Writers of the Future contest seven times prior to winning. And I'd been a finalist once, but I hadn't won previously. Uh, there were many things about that that was great. It gave me the, the impetus to write a story every three months that I thought was good enough for consideration in the Writers of the Future uh, contest. And even back then, I knew that there were a lot of people who were going on to make successful careers who'd come through the Writers of the Future contest right. and the workshop itself. And there are many people now who I consider to be friends and colleagues who came up through that route, who were, who were Writers of the Future winners in the past. Um, in terms of essays by L. Ron Hubbard, there was one that was actually featured in the book that my story was in, uh, The Writers of the Future 13, that, that came out that year. And there was—it's actually a very short, uh, a very short piece. It's like a two-two-page piece, and it's called the Fast Production Writer. It's a short essay, and what he was doing there was pushing back against the idea that being prolific is somehow the enemy of quality. Right? He was saying that it's not the people—it's not necessarily the people who are who are writing in their garrets and writing one story, one short story a year who are the big people in the field. It's the people who are actually pushing really hard and pushing fast to get as many words down as possible. And being L. Ron Hubbard, he obviously had some skin in that game as an extremely prolific writer. But I think he's right. And one of the points he was making was that people like Dickens and O. Henry and Walter Scott, they wrote a heck of a lot. They wrote all the time. And he says that he wrote some of his best stuff in the white heat of typing. And I think that's, I think that's good advice. And one of the things that I got out of that was to speed myself up in a way, to to not quite think, not spend so much time thinking, but write. Because like, like in L. Ron Hubbard in this very tiny sense, a lot of my good ideas come when I'm writing quickly, it kind of untaps my subconscious and I can, or taps into my subconscious and gives me ideas that I didn't know I had in the past. I obviously have that slow deliberative time where I'm thinking through plots, but also that, that white heat of writing fast is, uh, is quite important to me. And so I think that's good advice for young or journeyman writers, you know, people who are coming up through, is to not necessarily be kind of held back by thinking that you have to have to get everything right in your head before you put things down on paper, but just to write, just to do it and do it as much as you can. Because you can always throw away stuff that doesn't work, but the idea right. is to get as much out as you can and work with what you have then. Thank you. And then what about the the workshop or the like the value from your perspective to an aspiring writer for entering the workshop or participating in Writers of the Future. And we also, all this stuff is on writersofthefuture.com, which this podcast will be on too mm -hmm. shortly because we have the free online workshop. We've got the podcast. We've got a blog. We've got also Enter the Writer Contest and Illustrated Contest. And we have the last 38 years worth of winners and, and um, events that people can see too. But what for you, what do you think is like, 
one of the more supportive parts or one of the most important parts of why somebody should enter the contest? Um, well, I got to meet a lot of great people. There were a lot of writers. There were a lot of really top name writers like uh, Tim Powers and Kevin Anderson and Nancy Cress. And a lot of these people I've met again more recently. But that was my first exposure to writers of that caliber who were willing to just sit down afterwards. We would chat for long periods of time about about their writing experience and they were very encouraging and very helpful and very nurturing they were they were it was great to meet people who were like at the top of their game when i was down somewhere near you know bottom to the to, you know approaching the mid mid part of my game i guess so that that was a great experience of the workshop it was great to be taken seriously as a writer because I always got the feeling that the people at the Writers of the Future were serious about this and it wasn't just a publicity gimmick or something like that. They were really uh, invested in trying to bring out new writers and to, and to help us all along. And I did meet some people there, like the, the professional writers and also my peers in the workshops who I stayed in touch with for a while afterwards. And writing is a very lonely thing. I think a lot of writers would agree with this. That you spend a lot of time on your own in a room with a typewriter in the old days or with a laptop now or with pen and paper. And so it is good to have a sense of community and to, to, to get with other mm -hmm. writers. And you can get some of that from conventions, but going to writers' workshops or being involved in something really high-powered like the Writers of the Future contest, I think is, is very worthwhile. And I, I found it very worthwhile myself. Great, thank you. All right, that's good. So in terms of tips, and we'll just, have, we'll just finish with you, then we'll open up to the others as well. Any other tips that you can originate about you know, writing or breaking in or anything like that, that you think would be helpful for the aspiring writer? Well, I've spoken a lot, so I'll just say a couple of things very quickly. To write a lot, you need to read a lot, especially at the beginning. You need to read people you admire. You need to kind of take apart what they're doing, figure out what makes it work, maybe read once for fun and then once in an analytical way to, to see what the tricks of the trade are. Because writing is an art and a craft. And by honing the craft, it helps to stimulate you on the art side to be, to be more imaginative. And another thing is persistence. There are going to be downtimes. There are times when you think you're not going to be able to sell anything. Uh, there are times when you may have sold things but not selling anything in the future. Or you might not be uh, have the confidence. But I think it is important just to, to persist and keep working at it, and things will turn around eventually. Great. Anybody else with your, your comments on tips that you would give for the aspiring writer? Uh, what Alan's said is what I say all the time. You have to read and you have to write. I've been writer-in-residence at the Regina and Saskatoon Public Libraries working with people who bring in whatever they want they're working on, and I, I try to help them with it, and I've mentored writers. And so those are absolutely. The other one that I often come across and think of is you have to learn to let go of the love of your own prose, and you have to be willing to change it and fix it and throw stuff away. Yep. Um, a couple of times, it didn't happen very often, but there were times when I was working with a wannabe writer in the, as a writer in residence, and you could just see it. Their back went up like a cat arching its back when you said, you know, maybe you didn't want to use 27 adverbs in that one paragraph or whatever it was. Um, and, uh, you know, but no, but I love, or, or there was another one I was, I was critiquing. I was actually editing it and I was, I made some offhand comment about the fact that a character had. Uh, gotten stabbed in the heart and continued talking for about three paragraphs. And uh, I said, you know, this isn't, this isn't Hamlet, right? People don't keep these long <laughs> soliloquies as they're, oh, and, and, but he was really upset because he had poured his heart and soul into that. And he, I, he loved that character. And it was this poignant moment when the character was dying, but for somebody looking from it from outside, it was just wrong and kind of silly. You have to be able to 
to not take it personally when somebody tells you that maybe you did something that isn't really working. You also have to be strong enough in your own mind to not take every piece of advice like that you get from readers because there can be people who don't know what they're talking about. So it's a delicate balance. But yeah, don't be in love with your own stuff. Be willing to change it. Be willing to make it better. Got it. What about yourself, um, Ed Lerner? Oh, I agree with a lot of what's been said. I'd uh, emphasize that there's a lot of rejection in this game, especially when you're uh, new to it. But throughout, nobody sells everything they write the first time, no matter uh, how accomplished they are, how well-known they are. Uh, so get used to rejection. And when you reach the point where the rejection is not a form letter, but uh, pages of everything that's wrong with your writing, that's progress. <laughs> Editors are very busy people. And if they take the time to tell you what's wrong, they're actually trying to encourage you. Good. That's a very good point. Yeah. And, and the, the third thing I'll offer, and then I'll hand off, is what works for one writer is not necessarily the best for another writer. Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, trying a whole bunch of different ways to work and pounding out lots of text isn't necessarily uh, the best uh, for every writer. Some people need to plot and ponder and go for long walks to uh, work through details. And if they uh, have a few days when they don't add anything to the, the word file, it's okay. Do what works for you. Good. All right. And Jeff? You guys have covered it astonishingly well. So I'll just add a few things around the edges here. Persistence is absolutely paramount. Seeking out good criticism, whether it's attending a workshop or becoming part of a critique group, is and being open to receiving intelligent criticism is crucial. Knowing when to accept and when to reject a particular piece of criticism is equally crucial because not every piece of criticism is on the mark. Sometimes somebody will suggest a way to do something differently and that will tell you that, okay, something isn't working here. The suggested fix isn't necessarily the right one. I've done this with, with editors numerous times where they've said, I think you need to do this scene like that. And I'll say, um, okay, it isn't working for you. I don't like your solution. I'll come up with a different solution but address the problem nonetheless. And um, uh, although I don't, I don't believe that uh, people who are really early in their careers should be focusing too much on publishing or, or you know, having visions of uh, grand publications in the future. I mean, that's always something you aspire to, but being aware that the publishing landscape has simply been through a Vitamix blender over the last 10, 20 years. It is nothing like what it was when I entered the field, and um, particularly not so much for short fiction because there are short fiction markets you'll want to submit to, but book publication, traditional publishing is the best route for some people. Indie publication is the best route for other people, um, and it's just it's a real wild west out there now in terms of publishing. So be prepared for all kinds of eventualities Great. and always strive yeah. to write Good. better. Now, one thing that's been brought up a couple of times is, is um, 
the traditional route, indie, and self. So any particular... Well, I'll say something because I did start a publishing company. (laughs) I always saw myself as being traditionally published, and that's when I started. Uh, And that's what I was working forward to then. um, Uh But... I did at some point, what what drove me to, to start a publishing company in my case was I had all these publishers who had died on me, not literally, but their companies had gone away. It feels like I killed them, but yeah. I didn't really. And so the rights came back to me and I wanted to get those books out there. And then in the process of doing that, I had other people were writing stuff that I thought, you know, I could do something with that. And the next thing you know, I'm doing what is really a traditional publishing company, but I'm operating very much in a kind of indie print on demand landscape. Um, and I have self-published in the sense that I have published myself through my publishing company. But at the same time, I'm also publishing other people. And it's like Jeffrey says, um, you know, I'm doing this and I still don't know what I'm doing. So, <laughs> or whether I'm doing the right thing or if there's, cause you see the people who are self-publishing and making astonishing amounts of money and sales and, uh, you know, more than I ever have in my life. And uh, yeah, so it is really hard to know what's the best route for, for anyone. Traditional publishers tend to be very rigid in what they want. They want what sold last year. And if uh, you're comfortable writing what uh, was popular, you know, the 57th vampire book, you may be a better match for uh, traditional publishing. And I, I published in uh, traditional and uh, small press. And sometimes I'm perfectly happy writing what's popular. But if I want to write something that's a, a little bit different, I have a lot more flexibility when I deal with small press. I will say that uh, um, I much prefer to be published by a traditional publisher who does all the work that I am currently doing for other authors in my own publishing company because I'm really beginning right. to understand how much work goes into publishing in a way I didn't as just an author who submitted manuscripts and got books published. Yeah. Yeah, I can uh, I can follow that uh, with my experience of the last books. I was published traditionally through most of my career by Tor and Bantam and Dell and uh, other places, but uh, as I finally turned in long overdue books for the Chaos Chronicles, Tor decided we're not going to publish them. Your other books, it's been too long since your other books, and uh, they did this unexpectedly and and without seeing the books. So I undertook to publish them myself, and I went through just for my own books, Ed, what you were talking about going through for running your own company was learning how to do i knew how to do ebooks i had been doing my backlist in ebooks for years i thought i had a pretty good handle on the the self-publishing process but then once i started doing print books and trying to launch a new book i discovered wow there is a very steep learning curve to doing this and doing it well i'm not sure i've got and, to the uh, doing I'm, it well part yet. <laughs> no i don't know that i did either but <laughs> so alan you're gonna say something uh, yeah, so far I've been traditionally published. I'm, I may go to the self-publishing route eventually, particularly if I have a backlist I want to bring out. But for the time being, I haven't done that. I was going to comment on something Ed said. There are, there are different types of editors out there. Some are looking to replicate 
the, um, the the previous success. And certainly there have obviously been runs on dystopia novels or runs on vampire novels and things like that where people are trying to build on something that's been wildly successful previously. But I think especially nowadays there are also editors who are looking for something fresh and new and very different from everything you've seen before, they've seen before. So I would tell people who are writers, I would tell writers not to censor themselves, to aim high if, they, if they're willing or want to go the traditional publishing route and would like to be published traditionally. Uh, they should aim high and not self-censor and see whether that's going to work for them. I will say the timescales are very different. When you're in traditional publishing, it can often take two or three years from the point where you submit a book to the point where it comes out. That's what is taken in my case anyway, and I know it has for various other people. And that is a, quite a long turnaround time. And with the indie presses, often the turnaround time is much, can be much quicker than that. You can go from submission to publication in a very short space of time. But another thing I would also say is that if you do go the self-publishing or the indie route, do make sure that you're being well edited. Uh, it is worth having outside editors look at your work, even if they're coming out just from you, from your own publishing press, because I've read good self-published books and I've read bad self-published books. And a lot of the good ones are the ones that have had a lot of eyes on it, a lot of uh, have had some outside editors looking at it on the developmental side and on the copy editing side to make sure the product's as well as it, as good as it can be. So you can't really skimp on that step, even if you are going the self-published uh, route. Great. Thank you. Now we're down to about our last five minutes here. So I, I want to do a roundabout and this one. I'll go back to being uh, alphabetical, just how people find, uh, find you and what would you recommend? I realize I'm not going to ask you to say who your favorite child is, but as uh, um, an introduction to you that if someone likes this, then I read this one. And if you want that, read this one. So let's start with you then, uh, Jeff Carver. Okay, you can find me at my website, starrigger.net, or just Google my name, and it'll take you to starrigger.net. Um, <clears throat> has all my books. For a, a new reader, if you like hard science fiction, outer space, uh, um, borderline space opera kinds of things, I would read my chaos books, starting with Neptune Crossing, which if you're an ebook reader, you can download for free, and that'll get you started on the series and continue if you like it. If you're a little bit more of a fantasy bent, you, I would steer you toward my Star Rigger books. Probably the easiest entry point would be Dragons in the Stars, um, which kind of takes you into the whole world in sort of fanciful way. Um, if you like audio books, some of my books, all of my books are in audio, almost all of them. Um, some of them I would recommend over others, and the Chaos Chronicles books are are narrated by Stefan Rodnicki, who's one of the best narrators in the field. And so I would um, go for the Chaos Chronicles books in audiobook or Eternity's End, which is uh, uh, a Star Wars book. Great. Yeah. Stefan is an amazing voice on. He's done several of our, because he's here in Hollywood. So he's he's worked with some various projects. He did the introduction for us for uh, Battlefield Earth and just an amazing voice, just truly amazing voice. Yes. 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 All right. So um, Ed Lerner. For people who like short fiction, there's no question the place to start is Best of Edward M. Lerner. And yes. that has going for it both that uh, these are stories that uh, are award winners or award nominees or that kicked off some of my books. I'm best known probably for my collaborations with Larry Niven five books in the Fleet of Worlds series. 
for those of you who are familiar with uh, Larry's known space or his uh, most famous book, Ringworld, uh, the Fleet of Worlds series ties in with that, but can all be read standalone. Uh, I also write near future science fiction, probably best known for my Interstellar Net series. And uh, my most recently completed uh, near future science fiction novel that I mentioned earlier was Deja Doomed, Set on the Moon. If you're looking for uh, any of these books or anything else I've written, look for edwardmlearner.com, my website. And I'm Edward M. Lerner on LinkedIn and Facebook and Goodreads and any place else uh, you might want to look. Just remember, Lerner is L-E-R-N-E-R. -E Great. Thank you. And uh, Alan Smale. My favorite child is always my youngest. So in that case, that would be Hot Moon, uh, my ultimate Apollo uh, story set entirely on and around the moon. Uh, but if the Apollo program really isn't your thing and you're not really interested in an alternate 1979 and maybe you want to be in an alternate ancient North America or you're interested in Romans, uh, then Clash of, the Clash of Eagles series would be for you. This is adventure on an epic scale in ancient North America. And I'm obviously very proud of my, my elder children as well. If you want something a little more humorous, short rather than long, then The Wandering Warriors by Alan Smale and Rick Wilbur might be for you. And this is what we affectionately call our Roman baseball story. We were challenged to meld our talents and write about our favorite topics in one combined story. And Rick Wilbur's is baseball and mine is Romans. So Roman baseball story, The Wandering Warriors by Alan Smale and Rick Wilbur. All of my stories are available in audio. I think the, the best audio book job is probably the Hot Moon book, which has been narrated by Vivian Haney, who is uh, an award-winning and terrific voice actress. Uh, she gives my heroine, Vivian Carter, who commands Apollo 32 in the book, she gives her a really good, strong personality, and she's very good on all of the different accents, and she does a really good Russian accent, as well as an American accent. She really acts the heck out of it as she goes through the book, so I think that one's great. In terms of finding me online, I have a fairly unique name, so I'm not hard to find. I'm at www.alansmail.com. And if we're spelling our names, Smale is at S-M for mother, A-L-E, Alan, A-L-A-N. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter as Alan Smale. So happy to be for people to get in touch with me. Great. And Ed Willett. Well, I'm going to give uh, a plug to my latest book, my youngest child as well, uh, The Tangled Stars, which <laughs> if you'd like a far future, fast paced outer space adventure uh, that features uh, genetically uh, modified AI uplifted talking cat who becomes a starship captain, this is the book for you. Uh, and it's also one that I, <laughs> I actually used a lot of my sense of humor in, which is also very much in the previous three books I wrote for Doll, the World Shapers series, which starts with a book called World Shapers. If you like humorous stuff, I'd go there. If you like uh, fantasy, probably my trilogy, the E.C. Blake trilogy, The Masks of Agrima. Masks was my, my most successful book ever. Uh, so that's uh, Masks, Shadows, and Faces. Um, and there's others, but those that one. And if you like young adult fantasy, I like to recommend my Shards of Excalibur series, which is modern day fantasy with an Arthurian element. And uh, that has its own website, shardsofexcalibur.com. But you can find me at edwardwillett.com, two T's on Willett. So it's W-I-L-L-E-T-T.com. Uh, also, I mention again the podcast, The World Shapers, at theworldshapers.com. Publishing company I've been talking about is Shadowpaw Press, 
com. So those are the three best places to look for me. I am also on Instagram and I'm on YouTube where I do live streamed walks around my hometown of Regina. And I'm on uh, Facebook and yeah, I'm everywhere. If you, if you Google Edward Willett, I think I'm the entire front first page of Google results. So I'm pretty easy to find. Great. Thank you. And this has been amazingly fun. I knew it would be. And it was well worth all the preparations I had for this interview because I wasn't going to um, scrimp on the shrimp on this one here and, and not learn about each of you so, I could, so we could fully take advantage of what you have to offer. And I very much appreciate that. Now, thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Jeffrey, Edward, Alan, and Edward. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you, John. <laughs>